1: Good evening, I'm Mehdi Hassan. Welcome to a very special edition of Deconstructed here in LA, California, in front of a live audience at the Writers Guild Theatre. Today, we're talking about an issue of huge importance, literally of life and death, which in the past didn't get that much attention, but thankfully, recently, has been going up and up the political agenda. I'm talking, of course, about criminal justice reform, mass incarceration, police brutality, institutional racism, dealing with a prison system which locks up more people than any other country on earth that incarcerates black men at six times the rate as white men. And yes, impeachment and Iowa and Iran have dominated the news headlines in recent weeks, and the presidential election will undoubtedly occupy our attention for the rest of this year. But we cannot afford to ignore this huge issue, this festering sore in our midst. So that's what we're here in LA to discuss tonight with two very special guests. My first guest. Is an artist and organizer, a co founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. A native of LA, she's currently leading Yes on R, a ballot initiative aimed at reforming the LA County prison system that will be voted on in next month's primary election. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome and make some noise for Patrice Cullors. My next guest really needs no introduction, but I'm going to try. He's a world-famous, multi-award-winning artist and musician, Grammys, Oscars, Golden Globes, Emmys, Tonys, he's won them all. But he's also an activist, a philanthropist, a founder of Free America, a campaign to transform the US criminal justice system by trying to end mass incarceration. And one last thing. He was also chosen by People Magazine to be the sexiest man alive in November 2019. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for the legendary John Legend. Patrice, John, thank you both for joining me on Deconstructed. Um, John, let me start with you. You're best known, of course, for your music um, a lot of high-profile music. For my sexiness. You the mean. Sexiness, <laughs> sexiness and music. You pick. You choose. Um, a lot of less sexy but high-profile musicians and artists like to throw their weight, their fame, their reputation, their name behind good causes, behind campaigns, charities, uh, philanthropy. Some of them tend to go for the fashionable stuff, the sexy stuff, if you will. (laughs) What made you get involved with, put your wealth and fame behind this rather, what some people might say, unfashionable, unsexy cause of criminal justice reform, going into prisons, uh, helping ex-convicts turn around their lives. How did it all begin?
0: Well, part of it was through personal connection. And I think if you talk to any person of color in this country, all of us have relatives who have been through either the prison or jail system. Uh, All of us have had uh, some level of interaction with the criminal justice system, with law enforcement. And so we see on a very personal level how it affects our families, our communities, Um, and, um, we've, I think a lot of us, and I personally was guilty of this kind of looked at it more as a personal responsibility issue because, you know, I, I did the right things. I didn't, I didn't, you know, get caught up in the criminal justice system, but I had friends in my community that did neighbors of mine that did family members of mine that did. And at the time you're thinking, Oh, they messed up. They did something wrong and they deserved it this is how we punish people for doing something wrong they deserve to go to prison for whatever the allotted time is that's been legislated by our uh by our 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 lawmakers we assume that that's how things are just supposed to work and uh there's kind of a uh almost a fatalism attached to that um but when you realize that it doesn't have to be this way then you start to think well How do we get here? Uh, How do we get off this path and change courses to have a more humane system? So I started reading. I started reading uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and uh, Brian Stevens' book, Just Mercy. I I read other writers who talked about how we got to this place. I realized... uh, after reading that we were the most incarcerated country in the world i didn't know that i didn't know that as i was you know just going through life being pretty politically engaged and pretty politically aware uh, getting involved in uh you know uh, senate elections and presidential elections and endorsing candidates i was going through to be life fair,
1: a lot of americans don't know yeah
0: this. i was going through life not knowing this and i won an oscar for glory we wrote this song for selma and Common and I got up on stage, and I had just been reading Michelle's book, and I got up there and said, uh, in honor of Dr. King and the struggle that he fought for and that so many people after him and before him had fought for, I wanted to talk about one of the critical civil rights issues of our time when it came to justice and equality and freedom in America, which was the fact that we've decimated so many communities and families due to locking so many people up in this country and we do it way more than everybody else we have like three percent of the world's population but 25 percent of the world's prison population so i got up on stage when i accepted the award for glory and said we live in the most incarcerated country in the world and we need to do something about it and folks who are marching with our song we're with you and so i organized my team around thinking about this issue and saying we need to do something about it let's engage let's listen let's learn let's talk to experts let's go to prisons and jails and talk to the folks who are there talk to folks who have come back home afterwards Um, talk to all kinds of stakeholders and see what we can do to make a difference and so we've Started free America and embarked on this journey of listening learning about it. And I know it's not the most fashionable cause for um, Celebrities it's it's not the safest cause for celebrities because there are enemies um, that are pretty well organized enemies of reform but for me it was personal and it was worth it to get involved in this issue because we want to see big change and we know how impactful it is
1: you say it's personal if, if you don't mind me mentioning this in 2015 you wrote very movingly about your mother mm-hmm. who was in prison and you talked about how drug addiction tore apart her life and you said uh, and i quote my mother didn't need punishment she needed help
0: yeah she was um she never went to an actual prison but she went to jail and um locally in, in our hometown And this was all due to her uh, drug addiction problems at the time. This is when we were pretty young. And uh, my parents had recently gotten divorced and she had gone into a depression after her mother died. And this caused her to kind of spiral into a place where she started using drugs to self-medicate. And so many of us know stories of people like that. Um, So many of us have family members and friends that that descend into that same place. Some of it's because they were prescribed painkillers by the, the doctor and then they became addicted to opiates. Whatever the reason is. This is a health issue. People need help, and we don't need to put them in jail or prison. Patrice.
1: (laughs) Patrice, how did you end up here uh, as this globally renowned organizer, activist? What led you to this point where you're campaigning against prison violence, against police brutality, literally (laughs) 24-7?
2: I am. Um, Well, I just want to say thank you so much to everybody who is here tonight. Thank you, John. Thank you, Metty, for... This critical conversation, um, I think Los Angeles is... Uh, the way Selma was to the Voting Rights Act, Los Angeles is to criminal justice reform. What we do here in this county matters not just here, it matters nationwide, and I argue it matters globally. And so I really enter this work as a person who also grew up with family um, cycling in and out of the jail system and the prison system. And just for clarifying purpose for our audience, a jail and a prison are two different things. A jail is where people go Um, to, for trial, Um, people are usually sent there um, and held there, even if they are innocent. Um, And then it's the place where they often are convicted and then sent to prison where they do their sentence. And so here in Los Angeles County, we actually have the largest jailer in the world. And... Our county is has the largest jail department, um, largest police department, largest sheriff's department. And what I witnessed growing up as a child was over-incarceration. What I witnessed was police brutality. And I knew that our communities didn't deserve it. I, I felt it in my heart, I felt it in my spirit, and I wanted to do something about it. And so as I became politicized, um, as I became um, informed about the issue at the local level, I showed up and I started to to um, try to figure out how do I organize specifically around the issues of policing and jailing.
1: So right now, I mean, you're, you're best known perhaps globally in your role in Black Lives Matter. Right now, though, you're spearheading the, you're spearheading the Yes on Our campaign, which is a, there's a big vote on it next month. Explain to our audience, both here uh, in the hall and at home, listening around the country and around the world, what is that campaign? Why does it matter so much?
2: Sure. And... John, thank you for being an early endorser. Like, John came on board when we were gathering signatures for a ballot measure. For the audience, um, if you've never worked on a ballot measure, it costs a lot of money to change the laws. Um, It takes a lot of people power to change the laws. And it makes sense why rich people are able to stay in power. Um, That is one of my biggest takeaways. And this vote, Yes on R, is a vote for the people. It's a vote that it really is about uh, 10 years of organizing that's lifted us to this moment. So Measure R is going to do two things. One, it's going to hold the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department accountable for corruption. And number two, it's going to create a pathway for adequate mental health care in Los Angeles County. We have the largest mentally ill population inside our jail system, making the Los Angeles jail system the largest mental health provider. Do you all hear that? Our county jail is the largest mental health provider, which means that most of those people are being overmedicated, abused. They're being cycled in and out of the streets and back into prisons, back into jails, back into psychiatrists. They're not receiving the treatment that they deserve.
1: Patrice, it's funny, you mentioned the kind of rich people staying in power and how hard it is to change the law. There's a poll done by the ACLU not too long ago which found 91% of Americans want to see the criminal justice system fixed. 71% of Americans, including 52% of Trump supporters, bless them, say it is important (laughs) to reduce the prison population in this country. Two out of three Americans agree that black people are treated unfairly by the criminal justice system. So you have all this public opinion in favor of change reform, and yet it's taken so long to get to a point where we're actually having these ballot initiatives, measures, changing of law at the federal
2: level? Absolutely, well, first of all, incarceration is a failed experiment. We have to remember, this is an experiment. This has not always been the case in our country or in the world, and so what we've seen over the last 30 years is a growth in the prison population, a growth in the jail population, and now what you're seeing is people saying, this isn't solving crime. This isn't keeping us more safe. In fact, people are coming home from jails and prisons and their families are completely um, upended. There's so much chaos. And so what, we, what people are yearning for in this country is a new way of relating to each other, a new way of being together. And criminal just, the current criminal justice system tears our families apart. John, you've been involved in some
1: actual successful state-led efforts, local efforts to turn things around. For example, you were involved in Louisiana in getting Amendment 2 passed, which got rid of anti-black Jim Crow uh, jury laws. You backed Amendment 4 in Florida, which restored or tried to restore uh, voting rights to former felons. The Republicans are trying to stop that from happening. Yeah. What was your message when you were fighting those campaigns? How did you think, you know what, what's the best way to cut through to the average voter? And when I say the average
0: voter, I mean the white voter. Well, it's, it's, well it's, amazing. it's amazing what happened in Florida. It's such a hopeful story because it makes you feel like we can do a lot of major things together if we come together. And what happened is uh, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition... Um, Led by this wonderful man named Desmond Mead, he uh, he had been in prison for quite a long time, uh, but he came out ready to lead. He came out, um, you know, ready to go to law school, all these all, all these other things. But uh, as he found out, and as everyone that finds out that comes out of prison, particularly with felony convictions, society throws up all these additional barriers uh, to you reintegrating. When you know if we were doing what was most sensible and most just and most uh, um, cost effective, we would all want everybody that came out of prison to never have to go back. Uh, We would all want that to be a high priority, but... We do things that are backwards when it comes to that. We make it harder for them to get housing. We make it harder for them to get a job and we make it harder for them to vote. And so one of the issues that he decided to focus on was let's restore the right to vote for all these folks who had felony convictions in Florida. Florida was one of only three states in America where... A lifetime ban was in place on on folks who had felony convictions uh, being able to vote. So the only way they would get to vote was they had to affirmatively uh, um, petition the governor uh, to relax this ban. So individually, they'd have to do that. And it almost never happened. So you had over a million people in Florida who could not vote and the threshold to pass a ballot initiative in Florida is 60 percent. So just think of how evenly divided Florida always is. You know, we're always waiting, you know, on election night uh, to see who wins those electoral votes. And, you know, it's come down to 500 votes when Al Gore lost. Uh, You know, so you've seen how evenly divided that state is and how frustrating Florida politics can be. But they were able to in a bipartisan coalition go to the people of florida and say these folks deserve redemption they deserve a second chance they deserve to get reintegrated back into society by voting and it passed with over 60 percent even republicans came out even republicans voted for it because in that same election the republicans won the senate and they won the gubernatorial election so folks were uh, voting for it, that we're voting for Republicans. But then you have this problem where they won the
1: gubernatorial race. Mm-hmm. The governor is now trying, has done everything he can to stop yes. this referendum, this ballot from being implemented. Yes. When you look at Florida, there's pushback. Um, when you look at, for example, the, the cash bail system mm-hmm. in this country, which is such an outrage anti poor, anti black, discriminatory two out of three people in US county jails are there pre trial, mm-hmm. pre any kind of courtroom conviction astonishing statistic. And yet in New York, you have a bail reform law which passes comes into effect, is immediately attacked, that's the cause of rising crime. You're letting criminals out. In California, I believe, where they had the bail, it's been there's a referendum, I believe, later this year, because the bail bonds industry managed to get it delayed. Yeah. So do you feel sometimes it's one step forward, two
0: steps back when it comes
1: to criminal justice reform?
0: I feel like I feel like we're winning right now. I feel like um, um, even in Florida, if you look at how the law is being applied, uh, the the courts and there are a lot of friendly courts that are 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 advocating for voters rights in the state of Florida they're able to say you've served the body of your sentence uh, the and, and some of these fines and fees are extraneous to your actual sentence. And so we're able to certify that you're eligible to vote. So there are a lot of people that won't even be excluded uh, because of this new uh, fines and fees regulation because uh, the, the, the they can get a court to tell them uh, that that's not part of their proper sentence. Because you can see how you could add all kinds of fees and things on top of things that aren't really in the body of someone's sentence. And they've served their time and they should be Allowed to vote, so we're we're dealing with it. We're helping to raise money to advocate on behalf of folks who are affected by the law, and I think we took several steps forward and maybe a step or two back. But I think overall, it's been a net positive. Uh, a lot of people will have their voting rights restored and will be able to vote in this year's election in Florida and. What happens in New York and what happens all around the country, there are folks who have an investment in the status quo. Sometimes it's the police unions. Sometimes it's the bail bondsmen. Sometimes it's some of these prosecutor associations. And they all like the status quo where we punish more. We give uh, police all the power with very little accountability. They, they want that system to be the system that rules the day. But folks are, are coming out, uh, legislators, legislators, who, uh, who are being bold and saying, we need to be smarter on crime and not tougher on crime. And they're not letting fear uh, stop them from, from, from doing what's right. Patrice, do you agree with John that, A, do you agree
1: that we're winning? And B, uh, take California, for example. There is going to be this uh, vote later this year on, on, on the bail issue. Are you going to win that?
2: Well, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think it depends on how you understand winning. Um, I believe that we're building political power. And that, to me, is winning. We may have moments where the right lashes out on us. That's going to happen. That's their job. Their job is to try to destroy the wins and gains that we've gotten. Um, but we're prepared for that. And so part of what it's important, especially for the audience, for you to understand, the moment we win things, that, in that moment, they're waiting to, to, to fight back And that is not, to me, um, unsuccessful. That means that we are winning. That means that we're pissing people off and we should be. And so I think, you know, we've already gotten a threatening message from our local sheriff on Measure R. He tweeted about it. And I was like, good, you're noticing. Um, And if we were worried about, if we stayed worried about being attacked, like, we would not be out of slavery. (laughs) <laughs> we would not be out of a lot of really disturbing places we've been at in this country. And so um, we, are, we are absolutely building the power of the people most marginalized, and that, to me, is success. Just, you mentioned, you
1: mentioned slavery, and I'm reminded, John, you mentioned your speech as well at the Oscars. In that speech, uh, you said there are more black men under correctional control today than there were under slavery in 1850, which is an astonishing Shocking statistic. Yeah. What was the reaction to that from your fellow artists, people who you know, you're saying you were digging into this and reading about it, and you know, reading uh, uh, the new Jim Crow? What was the reaction when you say something like that on I'll the Oscars stage? I'll never forget stage? my
0: manager's mother. Uh, she she's an older white lady in Philadelphia, and she's a liberal woman. And she, you know, uh, she was just astonished that I said what I said on stage, and was like, "What is John smoking?" Like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's like, uh, I can't believe uh, he said these stats. That can't be true. And I think a lot of Americans just really didn't know it was true. And um, and I. I took a little bit of heat for saying it, but I felt vindicated because I knew I was telling the truth and I wanted to shock people and make them say, we need to make some change happen. And I followed it up with action. I spent the last several years following it up with action and, and really working on this issue and trying to solve it and speaking about these issues in front of crowds like this all around the country for years now. Just briefly, what kind of things has Free America done? So a lot of it, some of it's been uh, on the political side, and that's kind of separate from uh, our, our proper nonprofit role. So we have to separate those things when we're advocating for candidates or things of that nature. So I personally do that. But we have been out there creating awareness. We've been saying these are the issues that are most important. Let's inform people about the role of district attorneys, for instance. We've gotten involved in, uh, I personally have endorsed district attorney candidates, yep. but also as Free America, we've been educating the public on this is what a DA does, and this is why you should care about your DA election, because a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that so many of the the sentencing decisions, the uh, choice of what to charge, the choice of what kind of bail to pursue—all these decisions are made by unaccountable prosecutors. So they're unaccountable because we don't hold them accountable. Yeah. And w- if we do, if we pay attention, we we vote and we uh, a- and we create demand for more progressive prosecutors. We get them. And we and I personally endorse people like Kim Fox in Chicago, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, all of whom are making. Uh, real changes yep. to, to, to to change the way the policies work in, in those cities. So I want to come back and talk about this in a moment about the progressive prosecutors,
1: about the importance of elections and politics. We've got a big election coming up nationally in November. Before I do, Patrice, John mentioned like, you know, nice liberal white lady says those statistics can't be true. Um, race, when we talk about racism, one of the words we hear before the word racism is institutional racism. I just want you to explain to our audience, when you say the criminal justice system is institutionally racist, what do we mean by that?
2: Well, I mean that, I mean, the entire country, country is racist. It's founded on racism. America, um, the concept, uh, the way it's been produced, what it's created is an anti-black racist country. And so when we're talking about the criminal justice system, we're talking about a system that has relied on using that anti-black racism to punish people and to use punishment as a way to talk about um, mass incarceration. And so... Um, Our system is a system that has completely decimated communities and it's been specifically communities of color in Los Angeles County. 80% of the jail population is people of color. 50% are Latino, 40% are black and 30% are black. Um, And so I think it's been really important to it's been important in the last few years to challenge this idea that this isn't a racist country or that we don't have a racist president, even though in one breath he'll say something racist in the next breath and say, I'm not racist. And so we have to keep sort of grounding down in what is racism, how it impacts institutions and how it impacts the people that are part of those institutions. So you mentioned the president. (laughs)
1: Mm. What do you make?
2: of President
1: Trump trying to portray himself as a champion of criminal justice reform. Last week you had uh, the Super Bowl ad where we saw Alice Johnson, grandmother who was serving a life sentence for selling crack, freed by Trump. And also in his State of the Union speech he said, and I quote, everybody said that criminal justice reform couldn't be done, but I got it done. Referring (laughs) to the First Step Act that he did sign. What's your response when you hear him or Republicans say, those are the facts.
2: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I think um, we have to be really careful about what we're categorizing as criminal justice reform. And so um, if we look at the immigrant rights movement and this call to abolish ICE and detention centers, um, that is a huge part of of the criminal justice system. And so if we are only talking about one part of that system, if we're only lifting up one individual, if we're only talking about one single act, that isn't actually progressive. That that isn't actually reform. And so my challenge to 45 and my challenge to people who are saying he is, you know, being the criminal justice reform president is that that is untrue. If he is at the at this very same time holding babies in detention centers, that is not criminal justice reform. And I think what he's doing, he, he's, a, he's an effective Um, media person what he's doing as he's framing black people as his way to move us to vote for him and so he's really touting us and so black folks in the audience and listeners be careful um that is you being used um that is not authentic engagement
0: and, John. and just and just to just to tie a, a, another bow around it, and maybe move us to the prosecutor conversation. His dis, his his Department of Justice has a whole slew of prosecutors, and they make discretionary decisions about how they pursue certain crimes and and how to implement uh, these laws that are put into place. They are even. Advocating for people who were freed by the First Step Act to get back in prison. To get back in prison. Yeah. So their their Bill Barr is a, an extremely punitive, ha, very far right attorney general. So, so when so w- when he's implementing policy, he's he's not only uh, not only undermining the law, he's making it worse than it was uh, prior. You know the status yeah. quo is so, worse than
1: the status quo. So listening to you, John, can I assume that? When you say all this stuff, you disagree with Kim Kardashian West, who has praised Donald Trump for his, quote, passion on criminal justice reform and says it was really remarkable to see how committed he is to all of this. I think
0: he has a passion for uh, self aggrandizement. I think he has a passion for uh, trying to cheaply win black votes. Um, I think he has a passion for doing whatever helps Donald Trump. Uh, I think he has no passion for actual justice. And he has a passion for He has a passion for undermining the FBI if they're investigating him as well. Um, I think all of his motivations are selfish and self-serving, and he has no concern for the ordinary lives of, of he, ordinary folks. He
1: also has a passion this week you saw, he has a passion for the death penalty. So this week, the week after he said he was a criminal justice reformer, he comes out at the White House and says he wants to bring in the death penalty yes. for drug dealers he supports copy China. The Philippi-
0: he, he supports what the Filipino president is doing there and, uh, and other, other oppressive regimes around the world are doing. He believes we should be more punitive, more uh, uh more destructive which is so scary because the system.
1: intercept my colleagues uh, liliana segura and jordan smith uh, did an amazing series which i urge you all to check out counting the condemned where they, where they put together basically a database of everyone who's sentenced to death since 1976 and one of the interesting statistics is in recent years it's gone down the number of people sentenced to death and there's this worry now again that one step forward two steps back with this president and with this party are we going to see now a new urge for the death penalty
2: well, that's why this is a critical conversation around district attorneys. Are we ready to go there? Yes, let's go, let's go there. Um, raise your hand if you know what your, your district attorney does. Less, less than half the crowd? Less than half, but probably better than it used to be five years ago, because I would swear to you, five years ago, no one would know. I didn't know what our district attorney did. I only know from watching Good Wife. <laughs> I'll be honest. I'm British, that's my excuse. <laughs> The, the district attorney seat is probably the most powerful seat in your county. It's the person who can tell you if you're going to spend no time in jail, more time in jail, the rest of your life in jail, get the death penalty. And so my big thing, when 2016 happened, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not really trying to mess with 45, but what I can do is be home and change the system at home. And what I've encouraged people wherever I go is look at your local system. If we have a strong county, that means we have a strong state. That means we have a strong nation. And if we're living in the resistance state, supposedly, then that we have to force our counties in this resistance state to also be resistance counties. So the district attorney uh, that we have right now, DA Jackie Lacey, boo. I didn't even have to prompt you. That means we've done a good job for the last two years. Um, has has sent, most, has sent the largest number of people to death than any other county in the country. She claims that she is for um, uh, people with mental illness, but she has uh, refused to create a true department that's really helping people with mental illness. Um, she was against Prop 47, against Prop 57, all propositions that were for criminal justice reform. And she's ultimately turned her back against the community. And so we're calling for a new district attorney. And we're lucky in Los Angeles because we actually have two other people who are running against her. So so on that note,
1: um, John, let me bring you into this conversation. You're backing, you held an event with him last week, I believe, yeah. George uh, Gascon, who's That's running... Correct who is running, he's a former San Francisco DA, former police officer. Um, What do you say to people who say, isn't it weird that the incumbent, Jackie Lacey, is a black woman, Mm -hmm. and her challenger is a white guy, and yet on criminal justice reform, this is the person to get behind, supposedly? Well, uh,
0: I think it matters what they stand for. uh, Identity isn't going to be the sole determinant of, of what their policies are going to be, and Gascon has been a leader when progressive... Uh, district attorneys Progressive prosecutors We we had a convening of them In New York uh, Years ago When we first started Our campaign And we could fit them All in a little Uh a little table at the Soho House in a little little side room at the Soho House in New York when we met with him, and he was one of the leaders of that group. And as we've started to help get more elected over the years, we've seen those ranks grow, but he's been a leader uh, before a lot of other people were, and he was doing this in San Francisco and helping lead what happened in California as well through the work he was doing. And uh, he's he's been at the forefront of a lot of the reforms that we want to see, and so we think he's the best person for the job that's running and so that's why we support him Um, it's interesting Patrice that he's a former cop himself and yet the police
1: unions both in San Francisco and in LA are vehemently opposed to his candidacy good sign that's
0: whatever honestly whatever the police unions are for be against whatever they're against be for it almost works every time
1: that's good advice on the, on the DA's race. Not that I'm endorsing anyone. But I will ask this. Apart from the DA's race, obviously, very important, and you, you very eloquently, Patrice, laid out how important it is at county-level resistance counties. Obviously, it's equally, and some might argue, more important, less important. What happens in November at the presidential race? Is there a candidate that you fancy on criminal justice reform? I know that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both endorsed the yes on our campaign. <laughs> Do you, is there someone you think is going to be the president who can help turn around this super tanker on criminal justice reform, lead from the top?
2: Well, I do want to talk about the DA race and the presidential race. I'm going to be very New York Times. I'm actually endorsing both George Gascon and Rachel Razzi. I think we need all hands on deck to get rid of Jackie Lacey. And um, depending on who gets into that office... I do think we need to be training a new system inside of Los Angeles because that office is so corrupt um, and we need new people to come in and change it. And so I'm excited about the both of them. Um, I'm ready to... um, really, you know, get people involved. So I'll be, I'm making my, this is my official announcement tonight, but I'll be making one tomorrow morning as well. In relationship to the presidential candidates, you know, I'm going back and forth between Warren and Sanders. Um, I've had great conversations with both of them. I think that they would both be excellent um, presidents of the United States. I think, you know, I, (laughs) I want to beat (laughs) Trump. I, with my whole heart and soul, want to beat Trump. And so I also want to beat Biden. I just want to be really clear with his audience. <laughs> I, I mean, I think <laughs> that's almost done. Which shows you, which shows you where, where the country is at. And yeah. so, you know, that those are the two candidates that I'm, I'm really interested in and that I'm having the most conversations with. And I, I think it's important
0: for us to think about this um, holistically because... Um, I've, I've endorsed um, Senator Warren for the Democratic nomination, but um, I didn't do it on one issue. It wasn't no. just because of criminal justice. Um, it was a holistic uh, uh, judgment based on what I thought, who but I thought you, would be the have best have you been president.
1: impressed? Have you been excited about the fact that candidates are taking this issue yes, seriously? Yes, and I, and
0: I think it's because of people like Patrice, people like me, all of us in this room that are pushing our candidates. Even you saw this with Hillary, even in 2016. Like, Black Lives Matter folks were pushing her Mm. and she responded and I think she responded well to a lot of the critiques she was getting about some of the things she had said back in the tough on crime era of the Democratic Party of you know uh, when her husband was president and and I think she was getting pushed and it was a healthy push that we were giving her and so I think all of us, no matter who the candidate is, have to keep pushing them and telling them that they're responsible and accountable to us and uh, they need to listen to us and they need to be afraid of pissing us off. So, so whoever this candidate is, but we also have to be smart and realize that Gascone is going to affect uh, or whoever the DA is going to affect Uh, more about what's happening in Los Angeles when it comes to criminal justice than any president ever will, okay? You have to be very aware of that. So you have a multi-pronged strategy. You can't just be thinking about who your president's going to be or even who's going to represent us in Washington. We have to be thinking about who's running this city, running this county, and who's up in the state house in Sacramento. It's a very good point. And Patrice, I would say, when I was prepping for this,
1: I was thinking of asking lots of questions about Joe Biden, um, but I think we may not have to worry about Joe Biden uh, for very much longer. In fact, when this airs, New Hampshire will already have happened. Yes. Um, but you know who else is running and is now zooming up the polls? It's a man named Michael Bloomberg. And interestingly, Michael, Michael Bloomberg was the Republican mayor of New York. And here's what's interesting, when he announced his campaign, he said, I'm really sorry about you know, I did. what I did, the stop and frisk, and maybe we went too far, and no one told me at the time, and I was asleep, or whatever it was. <laughs> what's, so, what's so interesting, on the one hand, it's kind of bad that he's so cynical that he waited all these years till he ran for president to say, I got this wrong. On the other hand, it's kind of cool that he felt he had to say that before he could enter the democratic Absolutely.
2: race. Absolutely, there is a um, growing movement that has been bubbling up for a decade, that is challenging all of the elected officials that decided to lock up people like my brother, people like my father, the dozens of community members and family members who were children, literally. And so these candidates feel accountable, and that is, that is because of us. That is because of our movement. And for me, and you know, part of what happened during the eight years of the Obama administration is people felt like, okay, we got our president, we're good. And that is the worst thing for you to do when you're part of democracy. We need to be in the democracy. This is what that looks like. It's why in 2016, when 45 got elected, everybody was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like. We people got comfortable. I love that you don't say his name. I, that's kind of cool. I'm gonna borrow that
1: name. Forty-five. I can't do it. I can't do it. And just before we just before we end this uh, the presidential part of this discussion, I'm just gonna say a name and you can both respond. Pete Buttigieg. I didn't ask the audience to respond. Who wants to go first?
0: I honestly don't know that much about him. You know he. He was a mayor of a small city, and um, I truly don't know that much about him. I, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm not shat on any Democratic uh, candidates that may be our nominee that I'm going to have to go out and, and, and knock on doors for. I like. I, I just not am not going to do it. So uh, I, I want all of us as voters to push our candidates to be the best candidates they can be. And whenever we have a nominee, we need to keep pushing them. But we also need to be clear that we need to win the White House.
1: And if, if the presidential nominee wins the election and rings John Legend the morning after their election victory or the morning after the inauguration says, if I have to do one thing, I only have space to, I only have to do one thing on criminal, what should I lead? What's the first thing I should do?
0: Well... I don't know. I'd have to come up with an. Uh, I would do a lot of thinking and, and, and say, uh, here here's an agenda. Here's a criminal justice agenda that we would really get behind. But again, I really believe that so much of these decisions are, that are impactful are going to be the ones we're getting involved in in L.A., in Florida, in New York. All these states and and local areas control so much of the system. Ten percent of our our, our prison system is the federal prison system. So it's a tiny portion of what's happening in in the country. Uh, The First Step Act. uh, You know, Trump was very upset that we didn't talk about him at at that uh, event I did with uh, uh, NBC. (laughs) I believe he called you boring, John Legend, and filthy mouthed wife. With a filthy mouthed wife, he was so mad. (laughs) He was so mad that we didn't talk about him, but we didn't talk about it because it's not that big of a deal. And, and it, doesn't, it didn't impact that many people. And then his Justice Department was uh, undermining it as it was getting implemented. So it's just, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to all the other things we need to get done. I and love so, that the
1: master of the insult for you was boring John Legend. <laughs> That's the best he could come up with on Twitter on a Sunday night. My wife agrees that I'm pretty boring now. Okay. <laughs> uh, 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 the, Patrice, one thing we haven't talked about, very briefly, I do want to get your take on it, which is something that, the, something that the Democratic Party and even progressive prosecutors haven't touched yet, which is prison abolition, the prison abolition movement. It sounds so crazy radical when you tell someone who doesn't follow, you want to get rid of prisons. Just briefly tell us what the case is.
2: Sure, yes. I am a prison abolitionist. Um, I believe in... Um, and really what that means, um, prison abolition, yes, while it means that getting rid of policing and prisons as we know it, it's actually a call for our imagination. It's a call to imagine something really radically different. A call to imagine a different way of being in relationship with each other, and a different way of dealing with harm and violence in our communities. And so... Um, for me, I've been an abolitionist for almost 15 years. It feels really natural to me. I'm so glad that it's finally giving, getting some sort of like popularization. But it's it's a call to have a true conversation about what we've invested in. We've invested in policing and imprisoning people who are mostly homeless, who are mostly drug dependent, who are mostly mentally ill, who are suffering. Um, and how can we actually attribute that to a healthy system? But what would you say to people who say, I'm sure you get this all the, all the time. time. All the time. Which is the rapist all, and the murderers. We're fine with letting out non-violent I, offenders. Absolutely.
1: What do you do with the serial killers and the racists and so, rapists? So
2: what I say is let's not start there. It's actually not, it's actually a right-wing um, conversation to start there. Because we can have that conversation. Oh, With the majority. Yes, let's start with the 80% of people who are locked up in our jails and prison who actually deserve health, dignity, and humanity. And, and, and then, no abolitionist is saying, release the 1.8 million people out of jails and prisons today. That's not what's being said. What's being said is let's actually reinvest our dollars, our resources, and our spirits to something different.
0: Absolutely. And I, I want to, and we have just accepted the status quo for so long. It just feels like it's, it's the natural order. Like we just assume everything that someone does wrong means they should go to a prison or jail. Why is that the only solution we have to anything? Why is that? It's just like, it's, it's just like, Our gun issue. Everyone's like, oh, we just need more guns because other people have guns. It's like, it's just this destructive
1: cycle. You had that quite interesting intervention back in September when Felicity Huffman from Desperate Housewives was sent to prison for the college admission scandal. And a lot of people were like, what about all these black women who go to
0: prison for longer? And you said... I said, none of them should be going to prison or jail. (laughs) Like, Level down. Yeah, level level down, not level up. And my point was, we... It's a failure of imagination that we think prisons and jails are the only solutions we have to these issues, and most of these issues are due to poverty, mental health, drug addiction, all issues that can be addressed in other ways, and and we can prevent these crimes from happening in the first place if we take smarter steps to do so, but all we're doing is investing in punishment and policing, and it does not work. It simply does not work. Okay. It does not keep us safer. Before we finish... And that's a great
1: way to round up our discussion. I just want to ask one thing more. Uh, one of the reasons I admire both of you so much, and I'm delighted to have you on the show today, is that you both take a very global perspective when it comes to criminal justice, reform issues, issues of discrimination, issues of basic human rights. Uh, John, you're one of the few celebrities, actual A-listers, if you don't mind me calling you that, who has linked the fight for human rights, civil liberties, the fight against detention, mass incarceration, here at home, to what's been going on in the occupied Palestinian territories? How did you, how did you come to that position where you're on Bill Maher and you say, "quote As progressives, we should also speak up for the human rights of Palestinians." It's not something we often hear from A-list musicians.
0: I just feel like that's a baseline, um, that's a baseline human position. Uh, There should not be a whole group of of people in a country just because of their nationality or their religion being held in open air prisons and and uh, denied freedom of movement and uh, having their land annexed by uh, settlers and all these things. That's just a human position. Uh, It's it's not uh, I don't I'm not an expert in, in, in this area, but. But you are one of the few kind of very, very, very famous people to have spoken out about it. That's yeah, why. but I, I, I think um, I think, it's just as someone who's observing what's going on and saying this is right or this is wrong, clearly that's wrong what's happening to, to the Palestinians. Yeah. It's, it's so obvious. Anybody who's, who doesn't believe that's the case are, are being willfully blind, I believe. And Patrice... Free
1: Patrice, we saw back in... 2014-2015, you saw Black Lives Matter protesters holding placards saying, from Ferguson to Palestine. That was a pretty astonishing, amazing, unique connection to make at the time.
2: Yeah, I mean, what, we, um, what was happening in Ferguson while folks were being tear gassed, Palestinian community members were tweeting at them on how to um, heal themselves mm-hmm. of the tear gas um, it was um, a profound moment. And then many of us of the Black Lives Matter movement actually went to Palestine um, in 2015, January. And I remember um, being on that trip and having conversations with folks. And one of the women looked at me and said, you look, you look shocked, are you okay? Like, you've really, you, you never really experienced anything like this. Huh? And I said to her, well, the only time I've seen anything like this is when I've been on the prison yard to visit my father. And so the issue around Palestine, I think our generation in particular, millennials have really challenged this idea as if we, sh- if we stand up for Palestine, that means we're anti-Semitic. I vehemently disagree with that. And I think that what you've seen um, is a new generation of grassroots leaders and now people in Congress who are um, standing up for what's right. It's literally a human rights issue. Okay, and last last question to both of you from me. Five years from now,
1: 10 years from now, what does the criminal justice reform movement that you both have been working so hard in, what does it look like? And is there a point where you declare victory?
0: We have to keep struggling. We honestly have to keep struggling and we're getting wins. Like I said earlier, there there are times when, you know, we have setbacks, but I'm encouraged overall that we're making the case to the American people. We're making the case to our leaders and holding them accountable. And we just have to keep pushing and we have to realize that fear is always going to be part of this conversation because whenever you talk about crime, some people revert to their fears, their worst fears, and there's certain uh, politicians and police unions, etc., that will play on those fears. Uh, New York Post, for instance, will do the same thing. They play on people's fears, and uh, we can't allow fear to dominate this conversation. We need to talk about community. We need to talk about health. We need to talk about taking care of each other and, and uh, putting people in the kinds of safe and healthy
2: communities where
0: We won't even have major crime problems because of that.
2: Um, I think in five, ten years, if we look at our budgets, locally, statewide, at the national level, and if we are investing more in housing, health care, people having access to healthy food, public education, and we're seeing a reduction in the prison and policing conversation, we're going to be in really good shape. Um, part of what happens every single year when we get new budgets at the local level in particular is every single budget gets slashed except for policing and incarceration. We need to reverse that, radically reverse that now.
1: On that note, we'll have to end that conversation. Thank you to the Writers Guild Theatre for hosting us here in LA. And thank you to John Legend and Patrice Cullors. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. William Stanton was our recording engineer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor in chief. And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash Deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please please do leave us a rating or review. It helps new people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.